3: Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Walk away quietly in any direction and taste the freedom of the mountaineer. Camp out among the grasses and the gentians of glacial meadows, in craggy garden nooks full of nature's darlings. Climb the mountains and get their good tidings. Nature's peace will flow into you as sunshine flows into trees. The winds will blow their own freshness into you and the storms their energy while cares will drop off like autumn leaves. As age comes on, one source of enjoyment after another is closed, but nature's sources never fail.
0: I know that our bodies were made to thrive only in pure air, and the scenes in which pure air is found.
3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And
0: those quotes we just read were, of course, from the great John Muir, one of the great uh, priests of the religion of the mountains.
1: Absolutely. Uh, A true American hero. I say that without a shred of irony. uh, An important individual in the uh, natural preservation efforts of uh, the United States. And uh, I like these two quotes because he's he's getting into the power and the awe of the mountains mm-hmm. in that first quote. And in that second, he's talking about the air of, uh, of the wilderness. And we're going to be discussing the air of the wilderness in this, our second episode on sacred mountains. Uh, but I suppose we should, we should uh, of course, refer you back to the first episode if you didn't listen to the first episode on sacred mountains go back, that is the uh, uh, important first installment, but let's catch everybody up to speed on what we chatted about last time.
0: Sure, well last time we talked about holy mountains from religious and cultural beliefs uh, around the world, and common types of beliefs about holy mountains. We talked about the idea of mountains as the homes of the gods, or as the bodies of gods themselves, Mm -hmm. as uh, like entrances to other worlds, as pillars that hold up the heavens, as uh, places of pilgrimage, as places where the God's once were or still dwell or sleep, there's almost an infinite array of ways in which mountains have been religiously significant. And so we talked about some reasons that might be. Of course, there are things having to do with perspective when Mm -hmm. one climbs a mountain and looks down at the earth. Uh, there are – there. there's just the sheer fact of its size, I mean, in a pretty basic sense.
1: Yeah, and just how important natural forms are in our uh, – the shaping of our cosmologies and our sense of self. Uh, we, we discussed uh, like uh, the, the the main points along these lines in the last episode.
0: We also, though, talked about stories expressed by many mountain climbers, though certainly not only by mountain climbers, of hallucinations during the journey of climbing a mountain, including the very common third man syndrome, uh, the experience of sensing another person making a journey with you, who in fact is not there.
1: Right, and it's very often, um, I would say, a, a neutral apparition. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or helpful, yeah. not a beneficial one. So it's not like, oh my goodness, there's a monster beside me. It's more like, oh, well, there's a – I thought I was up here alone climbing this mountain, but there's this this other fella. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's comforting to know that it's not just me.
0: Yeah, we read a section from an account by the mountaineer Frank Smythe who wrote of his experiences attempting and failing to summit Mount Everest alone in 1933. And he wrote in one section of his account, quote, All the time that I was climbing alone, I had a strong feeling that I was accompanied by a second person. And then later, I remember constantly glancing back over my shoulder, and once, when after reaching my highest point, I stopped to try and eat some mint cake. I carefully divided it and turned around with one half in my hand. It was almost a shock to find no one to whom to give it. Hmm. And of course, there are also plenty of much more recent reports of the same thing. People having strange experiences, delusions, hallucinations, or at least apparently to, you know, modern skeptical thinkers, hallucinations. It's very possible if people had these experiences in the ancient world or if they're just less skeptically minded, they might think, you know, this was a real presence with me on the mountain. There was something supernatural happening up there.
1: Right. There was something revolting about my mint cake that (laughs) that drove the, uh, the spirit away. Uh-huh. Now, it's clear that very high
0: altitudes can have a number of health effects that could have neurological and psychological implications. These are generally thought to be caused by the lower air pressure at higher altitudes. This is understood to be the major cause, though I think it's worth emphasizing that there are things that are still not fully understood about
1: altitude sickness. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a whole – there have been numerous studies over the years about uh, individuals who are acclimatized mm-hmm. to a high altitude uh, uh, environments. Uh, that, that's something we could potentially come back and do an entire episode on.
0: Yeah, but I think one of the interesting things about altitude sickness that we still don't fully understand is why it affects different people so differently. Mm. Like you can't always predict whether a person will experience altitude sickness at a certain altitude. And so the generally understood major cause of altitude sickness seems to be the lower air pressure. It means less oxygen is compressed in the atmosphere uh, because you're up higher, so there's less atmosphere. You're sitting on the air you're breathing.
1: Right. And this was an idea that we initially explored in the under pressure episode.
0: Yes. And so this means you literally get less oxygen with each breath. And of course, you need oxygen to survive. If you're getting less of it with each breath you take, you can begin to suffer negative consequences in the body and the brain.
1: Right. And meanwhile, you are perhaps climbing a mountain. (laughs) Yeah, so you're exerting
0: yourself anyway, but it can happen even without exertion. Mm -hmm. That's important to note. And exactly what altitude it sets in varies a good bit from person to person, like we were just talking about. A reasonable figure at which a significant percent of people will display symptoms is sometimes cited to be 8,000 feet or 2,500 meters. But for each individual person, it's a toss-up. You individually might be affected at a lower altitude or a higher altitude, it's hard to know for sure if you haven't been there before. Um, it's usually said to be worse if you ascend quickly and don't give your body time to adapt to lower air pressure at higher altitude. Uh, so that is one thing. If you're expecting to be like hiking at a high altitude, it's good to give yourself time to hang out at high altitude without exerting yourself first.
1: Always be wary if you're aboard the Starship Enterprise and you teleport down to a mountaintop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> teleport to the lower mountain area first. Right. Then, yeah. yeah. Base camps are still important, guys.
0: But some common symptoms of like mild to moderate altitude sickness would be The kinds of things you would – first of all, the kinds of things you would expect with less access to oxygen. So maybe shortness of breath, uh, breathing harder with less physical exertion, uh, faster heart rate. You know, your heart's beating hard. It's trying to oxygenate your tissues. You're just not getting enough oxygen in each breath. And so, you know, you'd expect those kind of things. But also you can experience nausea, dizziness or lightheadedness and it can mess with your natural drives such as for sleep and for food. So you can have loss of appetite tight headache and that kind of thing. In much more severe cases of altitude sickness you can have uh, changes in the the color of the skin. you can have tightness in the chest, you can have uh, mental effects like you know uh, loss of loss of awareness, loss of coherence or confusion. Mm-hmm. There can even be coughing up of blood or loss of consciousness. And there there are subsequent life-threatening conditions that can come out of altitude sickness. One is known as high-altitude pulmonary edema or HAPE, H-A-P-E uh, where altitude sickness leads to a buildup of fluid in the lungs. This, if you experience it, is life-threatening and, and you should act on this – Immediately. Another is high-altitude cerebral edema or HACE when altitude sickness leads to swelling of the brain, which is very dangerous and, of course, can cause all kinds of mental disturbances. And so obviously, one question we might have is: if people often report seeing things that aren't there in the mountains, to what extent can these be traced to known psychological, or not psychological, known physiological conditions like Uh, cerebral edema, haste.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And and as we mentioned in the last episode, you know, we're we're not looking at this as like the the sole uh, cause or the sole um, uh, reason that one has mountain myths. But it could certainly be a potential uh, thing that augments them or feeds them in some cases.
0: No, as we mentioned previously in in the other episodes, there's no way that – say, psychological disturbances as a result of, you know, less oxygen reaching the mm-hmm. brain or something like that could explain all the myths. So one reason for that is that many holy mountains aren't high enough to cause any altitude-related symptoms. I mean, there, there are holy mountains that are just a few hundred meters high. So it's obvious that, you know, these are these are geographical landmarks and they serve, you know, they represent things to people. It doesn't have to be that somebody went up on there and had a hallucination that caused them to found a, a religion or a myth around the mountain, though uh, we do want to point out that it's possible that in higher mountains, people going up into these altitudes could have contributed to beliefs, you know, strange supernatural beliefs about some
1: mountains. Right. And or the idea that in general, mountains provide some sort of – uh, um, you know, loosening of the veil between this world and the next.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So I want to call attention to one recent paper in particular in the journal Psychological Medicine that deals with these phenomena of people high up in the mountains having strange and anomalous experiences. This was by Katerina Hufner et al. Uh, called Isolated Psychosis During Exposure to Very High and Extreme Altitude Characterization of a New Medical Entity. And this was published in 2018. Uh, So the authors here have examined about 83 documented cases among reports from Alpine expeditions, and they believe they've identified a new independent condition that's separate from altitude sickness and separate from any existing mental disorder. It's called isolated high-altitude psychosis. Now, of course, psychosis is a set of symptoms including— That would be IHAP, Right. Wait, what? We can call that IHAP. IHAP? IHAP. Oh, I, I didn't even think about an yeah. acronym. IHAP. Yeah, this is IHAP. Okay. The In- International House of Psychosis. <laughs> Yeah, uh, psychosis uh, is a set of symptoms including, quote, hallucinations, delusions, disorganized speech, abnormal psychomotor behavior and negative symptoms, and additionally impaired cognition, depression, and mania. So it's characteristic of of underlying conditions like schizophrenia but can also occur in isolation due to a number of inciting stressors. You know, uh, one of the things is people often think that hallucinations – can only occur if somebody has an underlying mental illness, but people who don't have an underlying mental illness sometimes experience hallucinations just depending on like fleeting stresses and things that are affecting them. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, Oliver Sacks' book, Hallucinations, is is always a fabulous uh, source on all of this because he, you know, he discusses hallucinogens a little bit in there. But uh, but for the most part, it's it's all these various other causes mm-hmm. that are in play.
0: Right. So the authors examined uh, a list of documented cases of mountaineering, and they looked for signs of high-altitude psychosis, and then they cross-referenced this to see uh, whether there were always concurrent symptoms of physiological distress from high-altitude, such as uh, high-altitude cerebral edema or HACE. Obviously, you can see why if the brain is swelling with fluid, that might cause things like hallucinations and mental disturbances. So from previous studies, we know that how often psychosis occurs at high altitude seems to vary a lot depending on who's doing the counting and what criteria they use. So this is unfortunately a case where the the numbers are not very solid. They seem to be all over the place. Like Wu et al. in 2006 found that uh, there were hallucinations in 3% of cases with HACE. Uh, Wilson et al. in 2009 reported hallucinations in 32% of mm. climbers above 7,500 meters, which is a totally different criterion than the last thing, obviously. So we're not going apples to apples here. We're just seeing what there is to to see about hallucinations at altitude. Uh, Bruger et al. in 1999, quote, found hallucinatory experiences in 7 of 8 or 88 <laughs> percent of world class <sighs> climbers who reached altitudes above 8,500 meters without supplementary oxygen. Obviously, this is a pretty wild fluctuation and I don't know for sure, but I would guess the discrepancy here has to do with the methods they're using to select cases in these different studies, right? You'd probably get very different numbers uh, if you just check to see if climbers self report psychosis versus, say, proactively asking them if they've had psychosis.
1: Yeah, this is one of those spreads of numbers that, uh, you know, uh, brings to mind the whole, like, you know, it just depends on how you torture the numbers, what kind of story you're going to get out of them.
0: Exactly. I mean, I think one of the problems here is that we don't have anything consistent Mm -hmm. uh, to work with going into the study. So so they had to try to come up with, with a method of their own, and they know it's not perfect, but it's just to sort of get a rough idea of where to start looking at this problem. So in the present study, the authors found, first of all, that psychosis of some kind often happens when you're at high altitude. Uh, Their sample, which they did from consulting existing literature, yielded a result that found, quote, hallucinations occurred in 42 percent, or 35 out of 83, of the episodes that they surveyed at a mean altitude of 7,280 meters. And of these episodes, 34 percent, or 12 out of 35, Uh, The hallucinations occurred at the same time that there were signs that the person had uh, cerebral edema or HACE. They determined that high-altitude psychosis can happen together with HACE or with other physiological effects or without them. Therefore, they concluded that isolated high-altitude psychosis or IHAP, your coining, uh, should be considered an independent psychological condition related to high-altitude and not just as a possible symptom of altitude sickness. Mm. And finally, they concluded that high-altitude psychosis is associated with an increased risk of accidents or near accidents. That's kind of not surprising. Uh, Now, they proposed some hypothetical causes for these non-HACE cases of of high-altitude psychosis. One would be like social and sensory deprivation in conjunction with psychological stress. Stress is often a common uh, inciting factor for people who don't otherwise have a mental illness to have uh,
1: hallucinations – Right. And then, of course, it's so varied depending on how much stress an individual is going to have in a given circumstance and yeah. then how that stress is affecting their performance and their mental capacity.
0: Yeah. And then you add social and sensory deprivation to that. They don't have anybody else there to talk to mm-hmm. if they're climbing alone uh, or, or they have limited numbers of people there with them. Uh, the, their view of the world, you know, there might be a lot less like color and stuff than they'd normally be seeing. Oh, yes. Another potential uh Cause they, they cite is quote, dysfunction of the temporoparietal junction and angular gyrus due to hypoxia, hypoglycemia, and cold. And then finally, they say, well, another possibility is just that haste is going on in these cases and somehow it's being underdiagnosed in the field. Maybe a lot of these people experiencing psychosis do have haste and just for some reason the normal symptoms are not showing up and being recorded.
1: This is, I mean, especially true if you're going it alone, right? Or, yeah. or even if you you have a, a climbing partner, like you, you may not, I guess, be having um, just a regular uh, check in about your um, your your feelings of uh, physical and mental health. Yeah, and
0: of course, cerebral edema is like that, that's really dangerous. Mm-hmm. You're like, if if you have this, you should be getting treated for it. That's not like a time to say, okay, I'll just power through and try right, to go yeah. on up to the summit. Now, uh, this is interesting. Going back to what uh, Frank Smythe and the others have talked about with, with their experience of what's known as third man syndrome, the authors here found that when climbers reported perceptual disturbances of various kinds, the majority, though not all of them, but the majority of them were either neutral or even helpful and comforting. Uh, for example, a hallucinated climbing companion who protects and guides them or a voice encouraging them or warning them of danger. Mm. Now, just because the majority of these perceptual disturbances and hallucinations are positive in nature or at least neutral doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about them since hallucinations at high altitude seem correlated with the risk of accidents. It's not hard to see why that would be. Uh, Climbers at high altitude should be aware that psychosis is very possible and should develop defensive strategies for what happens if it sets in. If you think you see somebody that you don't remember being there otherwise, you should have like procedures in place for that, like reality. Testing. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, about this study, obviously there appears to be some weakness in the selection criteria for cases. Uh, but I guess in this kind of study, you're limited by the fact that you can't just stick people, you know, random test subjects at the top of a mountain and see if they undergo psychosis. Uh, there, there also the authors point out there is survivor bias at play. Right. We're hearing the stories of people who were able to
1: report their stories. Right. So we're, people who did not succumb uh, on the mountain. Yeah. or experienced some sort of a fatal accident.
0: Or didn't have somebody uh, with them who got to report what happened. Right. Yeah. They say for future studies, you, you could perhaps simulate some conditions uh, like this in chambers that simulate altitude with low oxygen or low atmospheric pressure. Also, you don't need to have a huge or hugely random number of cases if you just want to establish that sometimes people report psychosis at high altitudes with no record of altitude sickness or acute sickness like HACE.
1: Now we mentioned already that that uh, one of the other uh, factors here is that not all sacred mountains are uh, enormous skyscraping uh, um, uh, you know monuments to the sky god.
0: Right, not all most sacred mountains are probably not even tall enough for people to be reaching the same kinds of altitudes that are in this study, mm-hmm. though some are. The authors here point out that uh, most of these reports of symptoms reminiscent of psychosis among mountain climbers come from very high and extreme altitudes, so like 35 to 5500 meters or even above 5500 meters. So there're going to be tons of holy mountains around the world that that do not even reach these altitudes. Nobody could could climb high enough to be at the altitudes like the ones being studied in this in this research. So I'd say whether the physiological or psychological effects of altitude contribute to these types of religious beliefs in some cases, especially at higher peaks, it's hard to know for sure. But absolutely, it seems possible and even a tempting origin story for some holy mountains and and sacred peaks around the world.
1: Yeah. One thing, and I, I may come back to this, the whole idea that most of these reported cases Uh, of another, of this, uh, you know, this third man or what have you, is going to be uh, neutral or beneficial. Mm -hmm. And indeed, when we look at all these different myths about uh, holy mountains, um, so many of them are about like the gods living there. Um, Like I wanted to find more mountain monsters. I Mm -hmm. truly did. I'm always looking for the monsters. And not to say there are not mountain monsters. Certainly there are. Um, there are traditions of things coming down from the mountains, Krampus, oh, yeah. etc, But it kind of seems like they're, they're weighted in favor of at least the neutral deities, neutral spirits and what have you, uh, and, and even beneficial beings as opposed to uh, the, the monsters of, say, uh, Mount Doom um, or uh, the Lonely Mountain in Tolkien.
0: Well, maybe we can – we will explore mountain monsters a little bit today, but maybe Mm -hmm. we can explore it more in the future. I'm just now – I didn't think about this when we were
1: preparing, but I just now remembered the mountain trolls of Iceland. Oh, that's right. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll look at another study and we'll move on to a particular mountain creature that, yes, you might qualify. uh, You might describe as a
3: monster. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: All right, we're back. All right, what have we got next, Robert? All right, so uh, I was looking at a study. This is one that you found, and then I ended up uh, diving into it. Uh, this oh, was...
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was interested. In, I didn't know about this one because it seemed like some of the... Well, well you describe it, and then we can discuss. Okay, uh,
1: Yeah, this one was titled, Why Revelations Have Occurred on Mountains, Linking Mystical Experiences and Cognitive Neuroscience. Uh, this was published in Medical Hypotheses 2015 uh, from uh, uh Ideld. Uh, Lancib and Blankiab. Quote: uh, Here's a quote from the uh, the piece. Quote: Prolonged stay at high altitudes, especially in social deprivation, may also lead to prefrontal lobe dysfunction, such as low resistance to stress and loss of inhibition. Based on these phenomenological, functional, and neural. Findings, we suggest that exposure to altitudes might contribute to the induction of revelation experiences and might further our understanding of the mountain metaphor in religion. Oh, okay. So they're really going for it yeah. uh, on this one. And they, they point to the major revelations in the three major monotheistic religions mm-hmm. uh, in Judaism, the burning bush. Uh, This is where God speaks through the burning bush. This is uh, from Exodus. Uh, Christianity, there's the transfiguration from uh, the book of Matthew. This is uh, in which uh, Jesus' divine nature is revealed to onlookers. Mm -hmm. And then in Islam, there's also the the, the point where uh, Allah speaks to the prophet Muhammad. uh, And that is also uh, like a mountain revelation. Now uh one of the the problems here is uh, getting into the idea of insufficient altitudes right
0: Yeah so I'd seen the study brought up on a science blog somewhere and mm-hmm. and I thought um It was interesting because it's touching on this question we're asking, but uh, I saw it in the context of it being ridiculed because the main mountains that it's talking about aren't really that high. You know, so they're not like super high mountains that would be likely to cause uh, altitude sickness, right?
1: Right, yeah. They're not dealing with Himalayan peaks here, right? Um, This is what the paper says, though, about the idea of moderate altitudes. Uh, They said, although the revelations discussed here had occurred in moderate altitudes, it may be assumed that in subjects who are prone to mystical experiences, already moderate altitudes are sufficient to trigger re- revelation-like experiences and revelations. So, I guess the argument here, then, I guess, is is first of all, you know, not not everyone's going to have the same reaction uh, to high altitude, like we've discussed, right? And that even moderate um, high altitude, they're arguing, could be sufficient. Potentially. Hmm. This is one of those more research-needed areas. But it could be enough to push uh, people's um, minds toward mystical experiences, especially if those minds are already uh, susceptible to, say, hallucination, to voices, or uh, to the experience of the supernatural and then the... um, uh, the 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 remembrance of supernatural experience you know
0: yeah it's funny that they focus on uh like the abrahamic monotheistic religions yeah. uh, Judaism Christianity and Islam because in the last episode you remember we had a discussion about how it seems to me that um that actually sacred geography plays less of a role in the abrahamic religions than it does in many other religions around right. the world whereas in, in the Abrahamic religions, it seems that when a place is holy, it's usually because the idea that something important happened there, Right. whereas in many other religions around the world the place itself has some religious significance the re, the land itself the mountain is the home of the gods or is the body of a god or is sacred in its own right and not just because of something that happened there
1: right I, you know I, I imagine there could be a, this is room for a lot of theological discussion uh, uh, you know in each of these uh, three religions but uh, but yeah, all, all three of these, uh, even as we, as we were mentioning them, uh, we were mentioning the event. They were mentioning in the paper the event that took place, mm-hmm. the meeting of uh, of an individual and the divine, for instance, in the case of the the, uh, uh, the the Jewish and Islamic examples. So, at this point, I want to turn to um, a, a particular mountain entity because I think it lines up with some of what. Uh, uh, we were just discussing here. And that's that entity is the Yeti. Oh, the Himalayas. Everybody's favorite cooler. No, not the cooler. I mean, unless the cooler has a, an actual uh, Yeti in it. Oh, uh, that'd be a good trick for <laughs> <you ever laughs>
0: discovered one. What was it? The, wasn't there somebody in Georgia who claimed they had a, a Bigfoot and like a beer cooler? No, it was like a freezer, right? Yeah,
1: it was a whole whole thing about 10 or 11 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember it well, because for one fleeting second, uh, it made me wonder, are we about to know that there is a Sasquatch? And of course, that turned out to not be the case. It was
0: like a costume or something. Right.
1: Now, uh, the the Yeti. In in modern Western culture, it has become just kind of a Himalayan variant of the Sasquatch. You know, if I say Yeti, you may just picture a Bigfoot or skunk ape, uh, whatever the regional variation of this creature is. And I do think that is important as we're moving forward to, to think about the fact that there are variations of the wild man uh, being in various cultures. Basically and,
0: like a bipedal creature covered in hair that is seen all around the world but has distinct origins in each case, right? Right, yes.
1: Uh, but uh, I was looking – I wanted to get a little like a better snapshot of the this ape-like beast um, uh, as far as like Himalayan traditions go. So I ran across a, 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 very, a, a very insightful uh, – a piece titled uh, "Bhutanese Tales of the Yeti" by Kunzang Koden. Tales of the creature exist through the Himalayan region, and uh, the author points to the different names that are given to this entity. Hmm. So, in Th- Tibet, there's Gangs Mi or Glacier Man. There's Mi Shampo or Strong Man, and Mi Chinpo or Great Man. Um, uh, the Sherpas uh, call it Yeti. The Lepchas call it uh, uh, Chumung or Snow Goblin. I like that one. Mm. Or mung or Mountain Goblin. In Nepal, there is Nialmu or Ban uh, Manchi. He didn't provide a, tra- a, translation, a translation for those, but I'm assuming some treatment on these various ideas, you know. Uh, and then uh, the Bhutanese uh, say uh, Migoy or Strong Man, or also Gredpo. So, you know, we get this idea of some like figure of... Of savage cold strength, with possible um, you know go, uh, gobliny uh, qualities as well. Mm-hmm. So Choden writes that the the migoi idea here it dates back to the pre-Buddhist Bon writings. The uh, this is the the pre-Buddhist uh, uh, animist religion. I believe yeah. we, we mentioned this briefly in the last episode. Yeah,
0: the indigenous religion of uh, Tibet. It came up because Mount Kailash or Mount Kailasa in uh, in the Himalayas is a peak that is holy not just to Hindus who believe, uh, some of whom believe that Lord Shiva and uh, Parvati dwell on top of Mount Kailash, but it's also holy to some Buddhists, Jains, and members of the Bon religion, the the Tibetan Mm -hmm. indigenous religion.
1: And uh, and apparently some Bon uh, rituals call for the blood of a Migoi slain with a sharp weapon. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so this was a pre-existing idea. But then you get some Westerners involved, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get this idea exported and, uh, and, uh, and reignited uh, in uh, the Western mind. Uh, so British traveler William Hugh Knight of the, Royals, the Royal Society's Club recorded a Yeti sighting in 1903 on his way back to India from Tibet. And then there was another sighting in 1825 by a Westerner, by a Greek zoologist N.A. Tombazi. Uh, who uh, described it like this. Unquestionably, the figure in outline was exactly like a human being, walking upright and stopping occasionally to uproot or pull at some dwarf rhododendron bushes. It showed up dark against the snow and as far as I could make out, wore no clothes. And then later you had print sightings and uh, and so forth in the 1950s that helped popularize the idea of the Yeti in the West. Mm. Um, various films, uh, certainly t- television series like In Search Of, uh, helped to, to contribute to this uh, idea. And today, the, the interest, interest in the Yeti continues, but uh, there remains no proof that the creature exists. In fact, uh, examination of preserved evidence of Yetis tends to lean toward the intentional or accidental misinterpretation of, of another animal or its handiwork. Hmm. So DNA work from the past few years, for instance, points to, uh, you know directly to, uh, at Asian bears as the source of the samples. So in all of this, in any time we're talking about a Yeti sighting, uh, even in like the, the Himalayan region, you know, we can't discount hoaxes and various other reasons. But we, when we consider the potential effects of hypoxia and, uh, uh, and, and these other like uh, high altitude uh, uh, situations. Yeah, which uh, all
0: I think in some degree are related to hypoxia. Yeah,
1: You know, we, we might be talking uh, more of a full-blown hallucination and then at lower altitudes, the effect could just be enough to make the individual, you know, see what they want to see. Uh, when they glimpse a normal animal or another human being, hmm. so uh, I, I found this idea. Of, first of all, there is uh, I did f- see this idea echoed in um, "Searching for the Yeti: Mysterious Monsters," uh, a 2014 book by Jennifer uh, Rivkin. Now this is a kids book. I want to okay. be clear about this. So you, normally we don't cite a lot of, of of kids book, but this one is actually. I, I was reading through it. It's pretty good. It, uh, it it seems to 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 balance the sort of mystical what if with a lot of uh, of legitimate skepticism, mm-hmm. uh, and then also I did see this idea um, also. Uh, echoed in uh, uh, a couple of journals and books, uh, such as 1989's High Altitude Medical Science by y- Yuda uh, Kushma and Vocal. And I think there is a lot of, you know, there are a lot of similarities between, for instance, that that Yeti account that I read earlier mm-hmm. and accounts of a third man, right? Oh yeah. Like here, there was some other uh, creature there, and. Uh, you know it wasn't human, but it was uh, it, it was hanging out. It was there. I, I glimpsed it. And then once you have this uh, and and you and this is of course, on top of uh, a pre-existing idea of there being some sort of a yeti creature in the mountains. Uh, and then uh, once this idea gets uh, becomes a part of uh, of Western culture as well, then there's more room to misinterpret the the evidence or even uh, uh, your senses
0: now, I wonder if the if like a psychological thing kind of like the, uh, the, com- the climbing companion, the third man syndrome is going on here. What do you think it might be that would cause people to see a bipedal human-like creature covered in hair as opposed to seeing, you know, another – just another human dressed like them or to seeing like a, a dead relative or something, you know, one of these common hmm. hallucinations of comforting
1: figures? Well, on the hair thing, uh, I think – certainly have one glimpsed a bear that could throw you off. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've ever seen a bear in the in the flesh, you know, it can be this weird, surreal, and frightening experience. I mean, hopefully a little frightening because uh, if, as far as I'm concerned, if you encounter a bear and you don't have, like, a, a certain amount of fear, you're doing it wrong.
0: Oh, I think there are... <laughs> good reasons why we see bears as objects of prehistoric religions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's quite clear that, that bear worship in various forms goes back a long way. That's one of those where it's kind of obvious why that would happen. You know, it's this kind of like to many people, the bear would clearly seem to be like the king of nature.
1: Yeah. This beast that can also rise up on two legs and stand yeah. like us, that is uh, seemingly slow and lethargic, but then full of energy and ferocity mm-hmm. that, uh, also, we got into this in our Winter People episode a couple of years back. A, a creature that, in some cases, uh, digs its own grave and seems to die and then reemerge with life in the spring.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, it does seem quite mystical. You can totally see why a bear would be a thing that you would be, you know, afraid to speak its name, speak its its dangerous holy name, and uh, and why if you saw one out in the wild, yeah, you you might think you'd had some kind of otherworldly encounter.
1: All right. Well, on that note, let's leave the Yeti and take one more break. And when we come back, we'll
3: continue to discuss the topic. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better and conquer it in the all-new hyundai santa fe visit hyundaiusa.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details hyundai there's joy in every journey today's episode is brought to you by ebay
0: ebay motors is here for the ride All right, we're back. Now, we've been discussing uh, records of delusions, hallucinations, and other just various strange sightings and encounters that seem to occur often at high altitude. Some possible explanations for what might be going on physiologically, neurologically, psychologically there. Uh, But we're going to continue with this now.
1: Yeah, so uh, uh real quick, a couple of other just examples of uh, not mountain climbers but individuals encountering some sort of uh, phantom stranger. Uh well there was the case of uh, uh Sir Ernest Shackleton. Um he uh, uh, uh he encountered a, a such an apparition. Uh also Antarctic explorer uh Peter Hillary um actually uh, encountered a presence that uh, manifested as the double of his dead mother.
0: Oh yeah, the whole uh, ancestors appearing.
1: Yeah. Which I which is important to, to to think think of when when we're we're thinking about the mountains as a potential, uh you know place where uh one can encounter the spirits of the, the departed, mm-hmm. um, so as I was reading around about about this, I ran across a Scientific American article from uh, 2010 uh, on the sensed presence effect, and this was uh, from Michael Shermer. Always a great source to turn to for discussions of paranormal experiences because he is a, an individual who has has had paranormal experience. Oh, as, I didn't know. But, that. Yeah, it was. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, it was a uh, like a uh, like a cycling marathon he was on. Hmm. It was a uh, you know it was uh, like a strenuous uh, exercise, and then uh, he ended up like seeing an alien. Uh, but it was because of like something he'd been watching previously. He's written about it. Um, uh, quite a bit, uh, but you know, applying the skeptical mindset and then understanding how hallucinations occur—you uh, know, how we think about hallucinations after they occur—takes uh, all of this into account. So um, he he touched on all of this and he pointed uh, to four uh, or so scientific explanations uh, that that, uh, that that he says really, really get to the heart of what's going on when uh, when people like this encounter um, uh, some sort of spectral apparition or a, th- a third man, et cetera. Uh, first of all. Isolation triggers the mind to hallucinate the normal feeling we get when we're working or traveling among other people, Mm -hmm. uh, which seems to be a standard uh, here. Uh, Then the rational cortical control over emotions shuts down due to oxygen deprivation, sleep deprivation, or exhaustion. And this opens the door for inner voices and imaginary companions. Next, he says, our our temporal lobe body schema, this is the brain's image of our body and what it's doing, is tricked into thinking you have a double. Hmm. um, And ever- up for a game of rationalization and story-making, the brain then constructs a plausible explanation for this double's presence. Okay. Like, there's another person, uh, there's another human being that's covered in furs, uh, and they're next to me. Oh, well, I guess that is another mountain climber. Uh, likewise, though, I could see where this would be exactly the kind of thing that could be misinterpreted as a yeti, right? Mm. Uh, because if you're climbing a mountain in the Himalayas, you're probably bundled up head to toe. You probably don't look like uh, a low-altitude human anymore. Then there's the mind schema, Uh, this is our psychological sense of self and it's simply coordinating independent neural networks to solve the problem of survival in extreme situations and the hallucination comes out of its function of making us feel like we're a single mind. Ah, yeah. but then, uh, oh, on the, on the sleep deprivation uh, situation, he, uh, he points to uh, Charles A. Lindbergh's transatlantic flight. Um, and Shermer quotes uh, uh, his writings, quote, The fuselage behind me becomes filled with ghostly presences, vaguely outlined forms, transparent, moving, riding, weightless with me in this plane conversing and advising on my flight, discussing problems of my navigation, reassuring me, giving me messages of importance unattainable in ordinary life. Hmm. Um, Shermer also shared that his own brother-in-law, a man by the name of Fred uh, Zeal, uh, ex- experienced a sense presence on both of his Everest climbs. Uh, the first case involved frostbite and a lack of oxygen, and the second entailed his collapse from dehydration and hypoxia. Uh, quote, "tellingly when i asked his opinion as a medical doctor on possible hemispheric differences to account for such phenomena fred noted both times the sense was on my right side perhaps related to my being left-handed" the sense presence may be the left hemisphere interpreter's explanation for right hemisphere anomalies.
0: Oh, this takes us back to our split brain episodes. Exactly. The, the
1: idea of the, the
0: interpreter. Now, normally this would be the the left hemisphere interpreter. This was Michael Gazzaniga's uh, idea of the interpreter being this function in the brain that sort of ties together disparate neural phenomena into one experience that that we sense as a single unified whole and sort of tells a story that makes it all part of the same game where in fact you know the hemispheres as was shown in the split brain experiments can behave quite independently of one another yeah, uh, but but we've got this thing that Gazzaniga calls the interpreter
1: that says no 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 that's all you it's just you. <laughs> so t- two things come to mind in discussing uh, all of this. First of all, is I'm all I'm all, anytime we discuss altitudes and pressure, I'm reminded of the the fact that human beings are not a creature that evolved to thrive on the Earth. They're a, they're a creature that th- that evolved to thrive. In a very thin atmospheric layer on the Earth. Oh yeah, and and then only within certain ranges. And when we get out of those ranges, when we get out of the, our our layer uh, the, that we uh, we thrive in, uh, we can run into problems. The other thing I'm reminded of is, uh, Joe, have you ever been to a like a children's musical performance, preferably a band? Or an orchestra uh, I've been in that performance yeah <laughs> I've right. been to one too so you know how ideally if everybody's uh doing doing their job and the you know the the the, uh, the conductors pulling it all together uh there's a unity you know they are performing this uh, this piece sometimes but in other cases things kind of drift and fall apart mm-hmm. and I feel like like that's kind of what's what's being described here uh at, at, a, at high altitude like the 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 orchestral performance that is our mind state is is drifting a little bit it is like uh it is it's it's not so much uh you know a, a professional level performance anymore it is a a middle school band performance and things are getting out of sync things are getting out of whack and then what does that mean when we are the performance that's a really good analogy because in that case I mean when you've got
0: even if Gazaniga's interpreter theory is not exactly right, there there clearly is a way in which the mind, the, the human brain is performing itself for an audience of itself. Like you, in a way, are the audience of what your brain is doing. Hmm. And so you're there watching how the show is going. And if the show is not going right, you, you are sensing it, even though you are also the thing that's messing up.
1: <laughs> All right, so... I am not a mountain climber. I am not a mountaineer. I've visited mountains. I've had, I think I discussed like maybe a very limited reaction to an increase in altitude that was slightly noteworthy. Mm -hmm. But I know we have to have some mountaineers out there uh, who are listening to to these episodes or our listeners, uh, regular listeners uh, to the podcast. So – we would obviously love to hear about your experiences at high altitude. Have Have you ever experienced anything uh, like what we've, we're discussing here? Uh, or have you simply, have you never experienced it? Or, or perhaps you can just speak to the, the awe and majesty of the mountains. Perhaps you've visited some of the sacred mountains that we mentioned in the first episode, uh, and you have a, a particular favorite you wanted to discuss. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, another question I have is, so... Outside of Lord of the Rings, outside of uh, uh, Skeletor's Snake Mountain in Masters of the Universe (laughs) and the Traveling Mountain Fortress of the Beast in Krull, are there evil mountains in mythologies and folklore that we uh, we neglected to mention because i was I was looking around mm. for them, and I, I like I say, the mountains tend to be uh, you know, part of just a sacred uh, uh, ecosystem, a sacred ge- geography, or you know they're home to various uh, beings, but like this idea of there being like a, a mountain doom, a place of um, uh, of evil you know or, or or a place that has been occupied solely by an evil force. I just didn't see as much of that, like aside from a few mountain trolls and a few Krampuses here and there, mm. um, uh, and certainly a few things that could maybe be classified as as monsters that are thriving uh, amid other magical creatures and spirits at, say, uh, Kunlun Mountain. Uh, you know, what are some potential examples here? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm sure there must be
0: mountains that are believed to be hell or something like that, a a place of evil gods and that are physical mountains on earth. But I didn't – I don't think I came across
1: any. So bring us your monsters is what I'm saying. Bring them unto us so that we might uh, see them and consider them. In the meantime, uh, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. You'll find links out to social media. And, uh, hey, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is to rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Rate, review, leave us some stars, leave us a nice comment. It really helps out the algorithm and uh, helps spread the word about the show. Totally. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent
0: audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode, or to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your Stuff
3: to Blow Your Mind
0: is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app,
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
3: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it.